ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Tuesday, the 6th of February. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. A statement from Buckingham Palace says the monarch started regular treatment for it but hasn't said what type of cancer it is. On doctor's advice, he's postponed public-facing duties but he'll continue his state business and official paperwork. Europe correspondent Isabella Higgins is in London. Well, Sabra, this news has come as a huge shock to the British public, but probably people around the world. It was just days ago that we saw images of King Charles out and about in public attending church and at the face of it looking quite healthy. Now we have heard from Buckingham Palace who say that he is already undergoing regular treatment for cancer. It was just late last month that we know he was in hospital seeking treatment for an enlarged prostate. The public was told it was a benign condition, but the palace revealed that while he was in hospital, doctors found a secondary condition. It is a form of cancer. We've not been told exactly what form of cancer. And as would be expected, the king is taking a step back from his public duties. We've been assured that he will still be able to fulfil some of those key state responsibilities, the important paperwork, but it will be other members of the royal family who will have to take on some of those public duties. And this all comes at quite a difficult time for the British royal family. You have Princess Catherine also away on leave at the moment, recovering from abdominal surgery. So it will be the Queen, Camilla, uh, Charles's son, Prince William, who will have to take on some of these duties. And of course, he will also be trying to look after his three children and his wife as she recovers. So a difficult moment for this family professionally, but also it would be a very difficult moment personally as they deal with this shock diagnosis. You've said that uh, Buckingham Palace hasn't said what type of cancer, but a number of media outlets are reporting that it's not prostate cancer. We understand that it is not prostate cancer. From the wording of the Buckingham Palace statement, it implied that it was a secondary condition that was found during his treatment. Uh, We have been told that the palace doesn't want to reveal any more details out of respect for his privacy, but that this diagnosis was made public just so that there wasn't speculation, so that the public was aware when he was seeking that treatment for an enlarged prostate he said that that was because he wanted to raise awareness for the condition. So certainly there will be plenty of speculation as to what this form of cancer will be, but I don't think we can expect any official word anytime soon. This has come less than 18 months after the Queen's death. It will be unsettling to the British public. No doubt. The British monarch is a much-loved figure here in the United Kingdom. Uh, Charles has been very busy since he took on that role conducting international state visits, fulfilling all of the normal duties a monarch does. And as I said, he, at the face of it, appeared to be quite healthy out and about in recent days. The public had been told that that treatment for his prostate condition had all gone well. So, of course, this is a huge shock to the British public and, as I said, probably a shock to the family itself. Isabella Higgins there in London. Hugo Vickers is a writer, broadcaster and royal expert. He joined me earlier from London. Hugo Vickers, it's late where you are. What's been the reaction? Well, I think it's fair to say that everybody has been extremely shocked by this announcement. Um, There were rumours that one was coming and indeed it came at six o'clock without any advance notice to other elements of the media. And of course, to hear that the King has got cancer 
uh, when we thought he was recovering from a straightforward prostrate you know, operation or uh, whatever that involves, has been indeed a great shock. The good thing is, of course, we have seen him walking to church on Sunday. There's every possibility that he'll walk to church on Sunday next Sunday. And he's just going to be having his treatment and uh, will not be undertaking strenuous royal duties. But of course, it's a shock because if you think about it, literally two years ago, we were rejoicing in the Queen having achieved 70 years on the throne. Um, The 6th of February was the anniversary of the death of George VI in 1952. But we saw the Queen cutting a cake and we heard that she wished the Duchess of Cornwall to be called Queen Consort after her reign. And so she therefore tidied up that last very important issue and went into a very joyous celebration of the Platinum Jubilee throughout that summer. And so in a very short period of time, the king hasn't even been on the throne for two years. He's had to face up to all these different issues. And he has also had his coronation this year and was really enjoying being a head of state, I think, every indication that he's been very happy in his new role. So it's a tremendous setback and everybody is, is, you know, very concerned on his behalf. Will Queen Camilla take up most of the public-facing work then? And can you recall another time where illness has forced a monarch to step back from these public-facing duties? Queen Camilla has been very much out and about in the last week and has been receiving tremendous press coverage um, even before this announcement saying that she was uh, running the ship of state, if you like, because as you know, Princess of Wales Catherine is also ill. She is recovering from being in hospital for abdominal problems and is resting until Easter. I think Prince Edward isn't doing very much at the moment either. And the other members of the royal family are rather old. I mean, so it's sort of very much all hands on deck to help. But yes, I'm sure she will be very visible and uh, will keep the show on the road. You asked about other monarchs, of course, in the last few years of the Queen's reign. Of course, COVID kept her at Windsor Castle, but there were quite a number of times when she didn't attend important occasions. The most important, I think, one that she would have really liked to have been present at was the Platinum Jubilee service at St Paul's Cathedral. It was very disappointing that she couldn't be there. But um, from time to time, monarchs are unwell. But fun enough, actually, which I think is encouraging, uh, Prince Charles, as he then was, I can't think of a single time when he was unable to fulfill any engagements. The only time he ever went to hospital was when he sort of fell off his polo pony and broke his arm, as we saw him some years ago with his arm in a sling. But I'm racking my brains to think of other times when he, he wasn't. So, you know, he's a very healthy individual, which is encouraging. There are reports that Prince Harry is returning from the United States to see his father. Is there a chance that his relationship with his family might be mended during this time? Well, there's always a chance, isn't there? And perhaps the one good thing that might come out of this, I know that the king has been incredibly forbearing with Prince Harry. He has left the door wide open for him to come whenever he wants. He has never responded to any of the jibes that have emerged from Montecito, um, which has shown, as I say, great forbearance. It was nice that Prince Harry came on his own to the coronation to support his father. And if you're under the weather, if you're having operations and treatment uh, to have a you know to have a some kind of reconciliation with your son i think would do him the power of good so i hope that that will happen i hope he will come over and see his father hugo vickers thank you for talking with am okay thank you so much and hugo vickers is a writer broadcaster and royal expert 
Experts say the harsh prison sentence handed down to an Australian citizen has cast a shadow over Canberra's efforts to stabilise relations with Beijing. After a closed trial, ongoing secrecy and countless delays, a Chinese court has given pro-democracy advocate Yang Hinjun a suspended death sentence. Dr Young was arrested in China in 2019 on suspicion of spying, which he's always denied. Here's political reporter Monty Boville. Five years after Australian Dr Young Hinjun was arrested in China on charges of spying, the sentence handed down caught even the writer's closest supporters by surprise. The sad news that Young Hinjun has been sentenced to a death penalty. I did not expect that they, they would go this far. It's a suspended death sentence that can be converted to a life sentence after two years subject to good behaviour. Fung Chong-Yi, who was Dr Young's PhD supervisor in Australia, wants to see the Australian government ramp up its pressure on China. Rather than doing business as usual to uh, now stabilise the trade relationship, that, that's not acceptable. It's morally indefensible position for Australia to put short-term commercial interest before the dignity, basic human rights, even the life of Australian citizens. Lowy Institute senior fellow Richard McGregor describes it as an extremely harsh verdict. He says it casts a shadow over recent progress in the stabilisation of Australia's relations with China. You know, I think over the past year and a half, um, the Albanese government has built a floor under the relationship, but we, it's pretty clear now that there's also a ceiling and probably a pretty low one at that. After frosty relations during Scott Morrison's time as Prime Minister, the Canberra-Beijing relationship was improving. China had lifted many of the export barriers it had imposed on Australian goods, and Anthony Albanese recently became the first Prime Minister in seven years to visit the Chinese capital. The Chinese ambassador was called into the Foreign Affairs Department yesterday. Where the relationship stands now is being closely examined. Foreign Minister Penny Wong has vowed Australia won't abandon Dr Young. Stabilisation means we cooperate where we can, disagree where we must, and we engage in the national interest. I would make the point this is a decision within China's legal system. Uh, clearly this is a, uh, an occasion on which we, will, we disagree. Uh, however, Australia will continue to advocate for the interests of Dr Young. Shadow Foreign Minister Simon Birmingham says the case should be the top priority for the government in its communications with China. The way in which Chinese authorities have treated Dr Young Hinjun and the sentence that has been handed down are a terrible reminder of the stark differences between our systems of government and systems of justice. Not only is this a painful blow to Dr Young, but in terms of people-to-people -people relations, it is a reminder of the risks that apply in doing business or engaging with China. Richard McGregor says it will be a tricky path for Penny Wong to walk. It's extremely difficult for the Australian government. You know, the US government with much greater firepower in all its forms than a country like Australia struggles also to get its own citizens out of prison uh, in China. Uh, so Australia just has to keep up the pressure in as much as it can, continue to make representations. There's always a chance, off chance, that he will be released on compassionate medical grounds. It doesn't look like it at the moment, but we have to work towards that end. Dr Young's lawyers now have a chance to appeal the sentence, but any appeal process would delay the onset of the two-year window for good behaviour. Monty Boval reporting.
Federal Parliament resumes today. The revised tax cuts package will be the focus, but housing advocates say that's just half the story when it comes to addressing the cost of living crisis. They say the government should funnel some of a possible surplus this year into expanding low-cost housing, which they say is halved since the early 1990s. Here's Annie Guest. From people sleeping in parks to those struggling to hold on to a rental, 640,000 Australians need housing assistance. And Wendy Hayhurst, the CEO of the Community Housing Industry Association, says they're most often highly vulnerable. And these are people, often with children, the long-term impact that has on someone's education and their ability to realise their potential. It's not great for Australia. And in the end, we all suffer because they end up consuming more of other services as well. Building housing is a preventative measure. The association's new analysis of Productivity Commission data shows only 4% of homes are used for public housing proportionate to the growth of population, we're actually seeing that there are a reduction of 60% in the numbers of social houses that are coming up for letting in any one year. So it's a 60% reduction since the early 1990s. And this is coming at the same time as uh, states and territories are spending more money on housing, public housing. Well, this is quite recent, but we're playing catch-up, so we have a lot to do. The Productivity Commission does say progress is being made. State and territory spending on social housing has doubled since 2018, and they've promised 33,000 new homes in the next five years. This goes along with the Commonwealth's pledge of 40,000 through the Housing Future Fund. But Wendy Hayhurst says that's against a backdrop of catastrophic failure, and more is needed. Well, we're looking at the fact that the budget this year is likely to end up being in surplus. We know we have that figure of 640,000 low-income households needing accommodation. So we're saying that surplus or some of that surplus should be put into the Housing Australia Future Fund so it's at least doubled so that we can do more from that fund than is planned at the moment. In a statement to AM, the Minister for Housing, Julie Collins, reiterated the government has established the $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund with $2 billion already paid to the states, along with the $3 billion new homes bonus. One of the charities building public housing is Blue Chip, and its CEO, Charles Northcote, supports the call for a doubling of the housing fund to $20 billion. Australia, we have the highest GDP per capita of any large G20 country in the world. And we need to be investing in our people for the future. And it's it's pretty poor that we can't do that at the moment. That's Charles Northcote from Blue Chip ending any guests' report. And the Queensland government announced yesterday more than a billion dollars to meet its new 2046 social housing targets, including plans to purchase homes, retirement villages, hotels, motels, to meet the demand. The country's internet safety watchdog is urging parents to spend more time playing online games with their kids. They say young people who talk openly about their time online are more likely to report online abuse if and when it happens. Oliver Gordon reports. The world of online gaming can be dangerous. That's why Canberra mother Melissa regularly plays Nintendo with her nine-year-old son, John. Being somebody who enjoys playing games myself and 
really enjoys playing the Nintendo Switch. John and I do that together quite often. Melissa's son has found himself in some tricky situations online, including being in a chat room with members of the public at just seven years old. He was playing Roblox, which is an application on his tablet. He was playing that a few years ago when he was a bit younger and I realised when he was telling me about what he was doing that he was talking in a a chat room or a chat forum to somebody else who was some other member of the public. I don't know who it was. It was a tough moment, but Melissa says her son was happy to talk openly to her about it, and that was helped by their gaming connection. He's not worried to have the conversations with us, so it didn't feel good, but it was definitely a good opportunity to have the conversation and then to set some ground rules for um, other games that he wants, wants to play. The country's internet safety watchdog wants more parents to either play alongside or talk to their children about online games. E-Safety Commissioner Julian Mangrant. We ask them about school, we ask them about sport, we kick a footy with them. We want to do the same with their online lives as we do their everyday lives. It's foreign to us because this wasn't integrated into our lives the way technology has. And certainly the COVID pandemic really cemented that the online world is an integral part of our young people's lives. So we need to understand that and meet them at the level that they're at. New research by her office has found young people who've experienced online abuse are more likely to open up about it if a parent has engaged with them about their gaming. The survey of more than 2,000 8 to 17-year-olds found two-thirds were spending more than six hours a week online gaming. More than 40% reported the activity increased their emotional well-being. But on the flip side to that, around 3% of gamers aged between 8 and 12 received or were asked for nude images or sexual information while gaming. That's part of the reason Julie Inman-Grant makes an effort to talk to her teenage children about their online life. It's also why she looks after their devices at bedtime. They're not allowed to have them in in their bedrooms and bathrooms overnight. And part of the reason is my investigators are seeing what we call uh, coerced, self-produced child sexual abuse material in 20% of cases where young people are being targeted online and they're being um, coerced into producing um, sexual acts, often in the sanctity or privacy of their bedrooms and bathrooms. So this is probably a small proportion, but parents do need to know that there are are risks and we do need to be overseeing um, their technology use, even in their uh, teenage years. On Safer Internet Day, her message to parents is clear. For starting those conversations, we're engaging with kids and we can help them problem solve as these issues come up. We're setting them up uh, with better critical reasoning skills. We're helping to build their digital resilience because these will be issues they will coming uh, up against online, um, you know, throughout the course of their lives. So preparing them and helping them through these issues is the best thing we can do as digital parents. The latest online safety advice for parents, including game-specific advice, is available at esafety.gov.au. Oliver Gordon reporting. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lang. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. When the Reserve Bank board members meet for the first time this year, they might be patting each other on the back. Inflation has come right down to a two-year low, meaning they won't need to raise interest rates again. Today, ABC TV's finance expert, Alan Kohler, 
on what needs to happen now for rates to start falling. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.